Hebrews chapter 4, we only have a few minutes. And so the passage through this chapter will be very quick. We may need to come back to it. There will be an extensive outline available in the next few hours on the website for those that want to take a closer look at it. Hebrews chapter 4. The division of this chapter is at verse 14. Verse 14, the appeal is the same. Hold fast. Hold. Is in 3.6, it's in 3.14, and it's in 4.14. Because the whole thrust and the purpose and scope of the Apostle Paul is to exhort those Hebrews to hold fast their Christian profession and not to backslide and go back under Old Testament religion of Moses that was being practiced in Jerusalem. We come to the first verse. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. The word therefore is there because of what's been taught in chapter 3. Because of the severe warning in chapter 3 of being like the generation in the wilderness, therefore we ought to fear. We ought to worry, lest we be like them. We want to be different. Fear is a good thing. When you're fearing bad things. If you're fearing yourself, that's a good thing. Because you should be afraid that you would turn out to be a hypocrite and a weak unbeliever like those Israelites in the wilderness. Let us therefore fear. If unbelief kept them from Canaan, what will unbelief cost these Hebrews in the gospel day? Let us therefore fear lest. Less sounds like it just may be a possibility. A promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. The lest does not apply to there being a promise. The lest applies to any of you coming short of it. Because the promise has already been declared in Psalm 95. Let us therefore fear lest that is how lest is to be defined in the English language. Let us therefore fear that a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. So taking from chapter 3, the Apostle Paul draws that conclusion. That happened to them back there. Now we are a generation of Hebrews that have heard the gospel from the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles Let us not fall short of reaching God's best. Let us not fall short of reaching His rest like they did. And now He's going to deal with that rest. Verse 2. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. They had the gospel preached to them in a very abbreviated and obscure form. It was all in types and shadows of the Old Testament ceremonial law and the land of Canaan. Remember, Jesus once said in John chapter 8, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. There had been enough communicated to Abraham that he knew about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not know in the detail that we do, but he had heard of it. The Bible says that the gospel was preached to Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his seed, which was speaking of justification through Christ. 
Those Israelites were preached the gospel in a limited form, but it didn't profit them because they didn't have faith to believe the message and obey it. They turned back to Egypt. They did not have the confidence that they could take the land of Canaan, so they all died in the wilderness. Verse 3. For we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest. Let me stop right there for a moment because the second half of that verse is another argument. The Apostle Paul takes Psalm 95 verses 7 through 11 and summarizes them in that one little first half of verse 3. For we which have believed do enter into rest. Now, where did it say that in Psalm 95? It doesn't say that in Psalm 95. For we which have believed do enter into rest. Paul takes the negative of Psalm 95 that those that didn't believe did not get to enter into his rest. And based on the word if, understood it to mean that those that did believe do enter into rest. You say, are you sure about that? Yeah, read it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said. The word as is an adverb, meaning in the way specified. For we which have believed do enter into rest, specified by Psalm 95, 7 through 11. And then he summarizes all those verses into this little statement. As I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest. That the wrath of God was threatened against those who wouldn't enter in, but because it was if ye will hear, you could enter in, and entering in was by faith. I don't know why he waited till chapter 7 to say these things were hard to be uttered, because he was uttering some pretty hard things in chapter 4. I hope you're with me, because I'm going on. That's verse 3 of Hebrews 4. Paul takes the negative of Psalm 95 and makes it positive, saying, If you believe, you enter into his rest and you avoid his wrath and his oath by that wrath. Second half of verse 3. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. This is an appeal to the Sabbath rest of the nation of Israel. That rest was given to them in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 as Moses wrote it years later. The works of God from creation were finished in the beginning. From the foundation of the world. So David, writing many years later about a rest, couldn't have been talking about the Sabbath rest. Because that was finished way back then. Why was he still talking about a rest that you could, if, if you would, enter? You follow the argument? Although the works were finished from way back there. When God created. Verse 4. For he spake in a certain place the seventh day on this wise. And God did rest the seventh day from all his works. You can go back and read Genesis chapter 2, the first three verses, and it said that God rested from all his works. But that isn't the rest under consideration, because Psalm 95 comes a little ways after Genesis chapter 2. So there's a better rest. Now, that was a great rest. That was a special token of God's love for Israel by giving them every seventh day off. The world had not heard of that before. God gave it to them. They didn't even fully understand it. Go, go read about when manna first fell on Israel. They did not understand about the Sabbath day because it was a new thing for them. It came in the Ten Commandments. 
It was a special sign between God and Israel. And you'll want to get some of those verses in your head if you ever run up against the Seventh-day Adventist. They, they believe that everyone since Adam has been keeping the seventh day. And we've taken the mark of the beast and are on our way to hell because we worship on Sunday. Oh, indeed. They believe that that is the mark of the beast to worship on Sunday. That the Catholic Church changed the worship of God from Saturday to Sunday. You just need to learn a few verses that that was just a sign for Israel. No one in the history of the world had kept the seventh day as a special day of religious significance up to Moses on Mount Sinai. No one had heard of it. You say, well, they read it in Genesis 2. Come again. Moses wrote Genesis 2. Please. That was a gift given to Israel. Oh, there I go. This is why time flies for me. Boom. That rabbit's dead. Verse 5. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Paul is milking the word if from Psalm 95. If means there is the possibility of entering in. If means there's the possibility of not entering in. As we read in chapter 3, verse 16, some provoked God and didn't enter in. Two did not provoke God and they did enter in. Joshua and Caleb. So there Paul takes that if again, in this place again, what place? Psalm 95. It says, if they shall enter into my rest. Why would there be an if? One thousand, you know, way in, in David's day, if the rest had been the rest of creation. The Sabbath day rest. The seventh day rest. Why is there still this if? Verse 6. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein. And they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. He's moving to his second argument. The rest that he's talking about here is not the rest of Canaan. Because verse 6 tells us, it remaineth that some must enter in based on the word if. There, some are going to believe and enter in. Some are not going to believe and not enter in. Because David is talking about a conditional if for the future. Therefore, it can't refer even to Canaan. And he limits it to a certain day. Uh, verse 7, again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time... Now, those are Paul's words of explanation. After so long a time, what are those words meaning? Way after the land of Canaan, David is now prophesying that there's another day of, re another day of rest. That if you'll believe, you can enter into that rest. And verse 8 will explain it. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? Who is that Jesus right there in verse 8? Joshua. If Joshua had given the Israelites the rest that God was talking about in the land of Canaan, then David would not have written 500 years later that there was another rest. Are you following the apostle? He, the very thing that he did in chapter 7. He said, why, if the Levitical priesthood given to Israel on Mount Sinai through Moses was sufficient... If perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, why, 500 years later, do we have David saying, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? 
Because if the Levitical priesthood were good enough, why 500 years later is there mention of another priesthood? If the land of Canaan under Joshua, cities, wells, and vineyards was the rest that's under consideration in Psalm 95. If, if that's the rest of God, and that's as good as it gets for Israel, why in Psalm 95 is David speaking of another rest? If Joshua, when Joshua is in Hebrew, comes into Greek and comes to English, it's Jesus. Mary did not call her boy Jesus. She'd never heard the word. And I'm, I don't, I've told you that before, and it's not to mess your minds up. It's just to remind you that there are a few languages involved here. His name was Jehoshua. Jehovah is salvation. It's a wonderful name. The angel tells us that, Matthew one twenty one. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, which is Jehoshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. When Moses met Joshua, his name wasn't Joshua. It was a Shia, salvation. But he's the one that led Israel into Canaan, so God changed his, na- God changed his name through Moses to Jehoshua. Jeho, J-E-H-O, Shua. Jehovah is salvation. Because it was Joshua that took those Israelites, the next generation, and took them into the land of Canaan and, got, and received God's best for their lives. And the Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior, and He's going to take us to the heavenly Canaan, the one that Abraham was looking for, the city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest... If that was the rest of God that was important and the final rest, then would he not afterward, in Psalm 95, have spoken of another day? But there's another day, another time, another trial coming for Israel in which they would be offered a much better rest. And that's why we have verse 9. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. The Sabbath rest was insignificant. The Canaan rest was insignificant. Because there remaineth a rest to the people of God. And that rest is the gospel rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. For he that is entered into his rest, that's God's rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Verse 10 tells us about the rest of being in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ has finished the works for us so that we can rest. He died for our sins once for all. He purchased the Holy Ghost for us once for all. I'll abide with you forever through the Holy Spirit. They never had that privilege before. We've got so much rest in the gospel. Heaven's promised. No more sacrifices. An undying priesthood. Constant assurance. The Lord walking with us. What a rest. No more animal blood. No more firstborn in the altar. Nothing. Because God sent His own firstborn to die for us. And that's what we remember at the Lord's table, is that God sent His only begotten Son, His firstborn Son, and He was pleased to bruise Him so that we would not have to put up our own sons or any animal or any other kind of a sacrifice because Jesus Christ paid the full price. For He that has entered into His rest, that it's the rest of God, God's rest, He also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Here he makes another appeal that after God worked for six days, he rested. And after Jesus Christ has taken his sacrifice into heaven now to appear in the presence of God for us, we can rest. No more works on our part. And that is the rest of the gospel. This was written written to Hebrews. 
Now, you may not appreciate that right now, but you know those Hebrews had to be taking animal sacrifices and tithes and offerings and free will offerings and, and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings for sins of ignorance and a Passover lamb every year. On and on and on it went. All the works they had to do that could never put away sin, Jesus Christ put it all away. They could rest. We don't appreciate it because we didn't grow up in the Jews' religion. We would appreciate it more if we had grown up in the Jews' religion. But with the eye of faith, we should be able to understand what a wonderful gift of God we have in salvation through Jesus Christ. Let us labor, verse 11, therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. The same example, that generation in the wilderness. They did not make it to Canaan. They lost God's best for their life. Let us labor. Let's work at exhorting each other. Let's keep our hearts with all diligence. Let's apply ourselves to the Word of God. Let's confess our sins whenever we do fall. Lest we depart from the living God and miss His best for our life. Let us labor to hold to true doctrine, lest we be diverted into a system of works and away from the true grace of God. Because the two of them don't go together. Salvation is by grace, and if it be of grace, it is no more of work, otherwise grace is no more grace. Romans 11.6 teaches that grace and works are mutually exclusive. They're antithetical to each other. And if it be of works, then is it no more of grace, otherwise work is no more work. The definition of grace precludes any works. The definition of works precludes any grace. So we rest. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. We sing it. Thank you, Lord. I'm not going to do it. For saving my soul. We rest from our works. Now, while we're laboring, while we're laboring, therefore, this warning, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. If we miss the full rest of God, which is peace, and joy, and hope in the Holy Ghost. If we miss that, it's because we have not labored diligently enough. It's our choice to labor, to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ in true doctrine, to keep our hearts, as I just mentioned a few minutes ago, diligently every day of our lives. We have the rest. Peace, joy, and hope. If we don't have peace, joy, and hope in our lives, it's because we have missed the rest of God. Because we have not sought out the Lord Jesus Christ by prayer and faith and held diligently to Him, we have let other things creep into our lives, and so we lose God's best for our lives. We lose God's rest. If we err in doctrine, and we take on even the Arminian scheme, that unless you believe, unless you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, there's no way you can go to heaven, then we've added something to the perfect rest of God. The Jews added animal sacrifices. The Arminians today add your little decision for Jesus. I remember when I made that little decision for Jesus. It was when I was three years old the first time I made it. I kept right on making it. Because I knew that I hadn't done anything when I was three years old that got God to write my name in the book of life. And I had no rest until I learned about the sovereign God of heaven had written my name in the book of life before the world began. Then all of a sudden, I wasn't trusting my little decision for Jesus. I was trusting God's decision in Jesus to accept me. Yes. Ephesians 1.6. And then I could rest. 
Listen, every time a preacher would say every head bowed and every eye closed. If you don't know, if you would go to heaven tonight, if you went out of here and were killed in a car accident, slip your hand up. No one's looking. Slip your hand up. I did that a few times and there was someone looking. Those, those prayer warriors would come chasing me down afterwards and pull me aside in a corner. There was someone looking. But even though I had invited Jesus into my heart at three, I hadn't stopped from my works and my labors. There is rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and then I found out that God made that choice for me. He accepted me in Christ Jesus, in the Beloved. And therefore, I could rest. And that gave me rest for the first time. And it, was, it happened a long time ago, but I'm thankful for that. Until then, I just kept inviting Him into my heart every time I got scared of dying. Every time I went to a funeral, I just invite him in again, just to make sure. Because, see, I was counting on my own decision in order to affect heaven. But God affected me in order to make any decision for Christ. Totally reversed. The Jewish application is one. Because you haven't offered a lamb in a while, we have to make our own application. Now, in light of verse 11... Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. We're about to enter into a couple of verses that are to get our attention this way. If you think that you can hide it from others, that you have a heart of unbelief, if, you, if your motives are not pure, if you are not in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, but you can come and sit in here and hide it from us, there is someone you cannot hide it from. For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The reason Hebrews 4.12 is right there that way is because any unbelief in your heart, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the living word of God, will see and discern that unbelief. If you are a friend of the world pretending you're a friend of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the living word of God, will discern that about you. That is why it's right here. The Bible, the written scriptures, are not in Hebrews 4.12 in any way whatsoever. Not indirectly, not any way at all. And every time you hear someone use Hebrews 4.12 as referring to the written scriptures of the Bible, you are listening to someone who hasn't studied their Bible very well. Because this is a very simple point. This is elementary. The written scriptures are not quick. How fast is your Bible in a 50-yard dash? You say, well, that's not what the word quick means there. And you're right. It means alive. How alive is your Bible? This is the living Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. For the Word of God, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That Word, for the Word of God is quick, alive, and powerful. He is a discerner of the thought. The Bible can't discern anything. It's words on a page. It's the pure, perfect words of God by which we live. And I'm not degrading the Word of God, but I'm going to tell you one thing. The Lord Jesus Christ that this Word tells about is greater than this Word. This Bible is just a witness and a testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Hebrews 4.12 is about the living Word of God, Jesus Christ. He is sharper than any two-edged sword. 
piercing, even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Jesus Christ can look right into your insides and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. We're still talking about the living word of God. But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. When we consider him, we have to realize he sees everything right into our insides. And if we have hearts of disbelief, remember it said, harden not your feet, harden not your hands, harden not your face. What did it say in Psalm 95? Harden not your hearts. Who can discern that heart? The Lord of glory, the apostle of our profession, the bishop of our souls, the great shepherd of the sheep, the head of the church. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are dealing with someone far greater than Moses. And if we play with his religion, and we think that we can love the world and love the Lord, he sees that, because all things are naked and open to him. Verse 14 tells us exactly who is under consideration, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. And there's where the end of that argument comes. Let us hold fast our profession based on the fact that Jesus Christ is such a great high priest that when you come before him to confess your sins, he sees every compromise of your heart and mind. He is able to discern all the thoughts and intents of your heart. Every motive that you have is clearly seen by the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, let us hold fast our profession. He had started out in 3.1 that you Hebrews and I, the Apostle Paul, though we hadn't told who, who he was, we together have made a profession in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we compromise that profession or if we cheat or if we try to love the world or if we're even thinking about departing from the living God or if we've grown cold and we don't care, if we've lost our joy and we don't attempt to restore it, the Lord Jesus Christ sees every bit of that. He is a priest that we cannot get away with cheating in our hearts because he is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Therefore, he's used quite a few reasons, hasn't he? Because Jesus is God, because he's a great high priest, chapter 2, because he's crowned with glory and honor, because he's better than Moses, he's used a whole lot of ways to exhort us to love the Lord Jesus Christ and be faithful in our profession of Christianity. He says it here out of fear, because the Lord Jesus Christ cannot be played with. You can pretend and play with all of us, but you cannot with him. Let us hold fast our profession, seeing then... Verse 14 is a conclusion. Therefore, since we are dealing with the living word of God, let us hold fast our profession. Because if we're not holding it fast, he's going to see it. And every thought and every intent and every motive of our hearts will be naked before him. If you're sitting here today and you have thoughts in other places, the Lord Jesus Christ sees every single one of them. I beg you, I exhort you to repent of all those thoughts and cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy and say, Lord, save me. Save me from my foolish thoughts. Save me from my wayward feet. Lord, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Bind my wandering heart to thee. Cry out. He'll have mercy.
He'll save you. He'll, re- he'll resurrect your soul. But if you just blow me off and ignore me, the Lord Jesus Christ will have the last laugh. And I'll laugh right behind him. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is perfectly righteous and holy. And all the saints in heaven will laugh right behind him as well. It's not because he or we hate you, but we hate hypocrites. And we hate hypocrisy when it's right here. The Lord Jesus Christ sees every bit of it. Therefore, let us hold fast our profession of faith. The Israelites that came out of Egypt didn't do it, and they died in the wilderness. Many of the Israelites that heard John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the apostles didn't do it, and they were scattered to the four winds of heaven throughout the nations of the earth, and their nation was destroyed. The Lord Jesus Christ will chasten us severely if we are not dedicated wholly to him. And if we're not looking forward to the day of his coming and we don't love the rest that he's given us, he has given us so much he sent his own son to die for us. Therefore, we ought to be full of joy and faithfulness for all of our lives. And if we are not, then we are the most ungrateful wretches and the most profane rebels. And we deserve the punishment that he'll pour out on us. The last two verses of chapter 4, he turns entirely to a positive. Paul, the book of Hebrews is just one argument after another that Jesus Christ is superior to the Jews' religion. How is it superior in verses 4 and 5? This living word of God that sees everything is not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. When you have two negatives like that, we have a positive. The Lord Jesus Christ can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. This great God, before whom all things are naked and opened, the living word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He knows everything that you struggle with. He knows everything that you're troubled by. In all points he was tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we're troubled, we ought to remember that he sees any temptation on our part or any playing with sin in our hearts that we're going to depart from the living God or that we're going to relax and give up on fully following the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees all that. But yet at the same time, he was tempted in all points like as we are, but without sin. And therefore we can go to him boldly, that we can obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Consider our high priest and apostle. The Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest enemy of hypocrites. He's the greatest friend of repentant sinners. Praise the Lord. All you have to do is turn from your hypocrisy and playing with sin and run to him. He understands because he was tempted in all points like as we are. We can come boldly to him. Lord, save me. He will. Lord, I can't do it. He'll help you do it. Lord, I want to do it, but I don't find the strength. He'll give you the strength. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And so chapter 4 concludes a severe warning throughout this epistle of Paul to the Hebrews that they had better hold fast their profession of faith. 
And the warning comes to us Gentiles. We live in the gospel era as well. We, our lives had better be full of confidence. We should approach life and death confidently because the Lord Jesus Christ has saved us and we should be full of joy, rejoicing in the hope, firm unto the end. Our lives should be full of joy, full of hope, full of peace, and full of rest because Jesus Christ has purchased our salvation fully for us. The forgiveness of sins, eternal glory, grace, all of it purchased by Jesus Christ who came and made us acceptable to God our Father by his death on the cross, which we remember at the Lord's table. He sees our hearts. If you love him in your heart and are seeking to live for him, he knows every bit of it and he'll bless you for it. Run unto him. You can go boldly to his throne. You don't have to be terrified if you're living in righteousness. But if you're a hypocrite, you should live your life in terror. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left of us, of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. We don't want to come short of it. Are there any Joshua's and Caleb's here who are going to follow Jesus Christ no matter what? And nothing is going to disturb them or distract them. May the Lord bless us to be like those two and like our brother Paul. And love our Lord Jesus Christ. What a great high priest. What an apostle. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith.